Uh, before we begin, we usually do this on the second Sunday of every month, but we have an early elders meeting this month. We were able to get all the information together. Just uh, as a reminder, at the end of October, um, in order to reach budget, we should have $333,000. We actually have three hundred and six, three hundred six thousand. dollars So we're off by about $26,000. Um, just something to remember as we go into the last two months. Something to, uh, you know, talk to your family about, about sacrificial giving. You'll notice I'm not panicked, right? I mean, hey, we get what we need. That's the way it goes. That's what God does. He's always done that, continues to do that. This place is just incredibly generous with time, treasure, and talent, so that's not something to fret on. But it is something to remind us of and make sure we, we keep that in front of us at least once a month. We've got to operate somehow. The other thing I want to do is uh, coming up Thursday, it's the 11th. And so I certainly want to express appreciation to those who have served and continue to serve uh, in the military for our, our country. Um, we remember those people uh, this, this week. We remember them all the time, frankly. I mean, it's just the way it goes. And I, I like that. I, I think that's a good thing to have in a culture. Um, but we certainly remember that coming up here on Thursday. And so I want to extend my appreciation there. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And while you do that, I was excited. Um, I am excited, I should say, about our Thanksgiving dinner. Now, I say that this is my favorite day. Theron and I have been over this. He says, you use favorite too much. You don't know what this means. So we talked about it. But I still think that Thanksgiving is my favorite day. I like it. I love it. And I like having people together, and I like celebrating, and I like eating food, and I, I just like that, that whole atmosphere. I love that. And we get wonderful things in this culture, and Thanksgiving's one of them. I, just, I think that's just a great thing to continue. There's a lot of wonderful things that we have in this culture, particularly this time of year. This time of year, another sort of American thing, right, is baseball. We finish up with the World Series. By the way, the Braves did it, okay? Look, I hope I'm not spoiling anything. It's all right. It's done. It's happened, all right? The Braves did it. I, I, I didn't really have a dog in that particular hunt, but we watched it. Sam and I watched it. Most of the games, or we'd finish up watching the games in the morning before we went off to school, and it was fun. Baseball was fun. And, 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 and I would sit and talk to them. We'd sit and talk about baseball as we're watching these things. And, and I would use a couple of examples, and I'd talk about some stories, and I'd talk about some games, and I'd talk about some movies about baseball. And then one time I said, you know, Sam, like they say in the Field of Dreams. And he asked me, he said, what's the Field of Dreams? He didn't know. I am raising a son. And I haven't shown him or told him what the Field of Dreams is. What a failure. Now, I don't know if it's appropriate to do it right now. Um, there is some language in, in that movie you've got to be careful of. And so I don't know if we'll be watching it tomorrow. But that's a great movie. It reminds you of baseball. It reminds you of just all those wonderful things about, about our country and about this culture. But there's a line, and you know the line. Uh, well, there's a couple lines, I suppose. Uh, there's At the end of the movie, there's a grand uh, uh, saying, a grand line from the uh, character of James Earl Jones, and he says this. You've heard this before. People will come, Ray, 
the one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been a race like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the test of time. This field, this game, it's a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that was once good, and it could be again. Oh, people will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again that we get to learn, that we get to study, that, 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 that we get to be reminded today perhaps, or maybe, maybe we get to learn something new today, and we thank you for that. That's, that's such an incredible gift that we could read your word and we could make it a part of our lives and apply it. And so that's what we ask for today, Father, that we will, that we will know, that we will apply, that our eyes will be open, that we will remember an incredible heritage today, Father. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me if you haven't done already. I can't remember if I told you. In Acts chapter 2. Uh, the past two weeks, we've been able to identify a couple things about the church. And that's what we're going over. What is the church? Uh, you know, it's, uh, sort of a definition, uh, a general definition throughout the ages of what the church is. And a few weeks ago, it was what the church was, or rather, who is the church? You can't separate the what and the who. The church is a group of people who have given their lives to Jesus Christ. And we also learned last week that the church is all over the place. And yes, the church is in the lives and hearts and minds of people that you disagree with about big things and small things and all kinds of things. Now, I'm not saying they're right, and I'm not saying you're right. What I'm saying is there's people who have given their lives to Jesus. They believe in Jesus. They love Christ. He is their Savior and their King. And you come up against people that you disagree with. You're not through. You're not completed in your sanctification. And guess what? Neither are they in this full understanding, in this full purification. So when we put it in that perspective, we know the church is all kinds of, but it's all over the place, all over the world. Today, we ask and answer the question, when? When is the church? And that's really a two-part question. Number one, when did Jesus' church begin? When did Christ's church begin? And it's very important to say Christ's church or the Christian church. And the second question is, when do we do church? When do we do church? I want to address the second question first. Let's just get that one out of the way. When do we do church? Well, remember, the church is what you are. If you've given your life to Jesus and you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life, that's what you are is the church. You are also other things. You are a human being, right? And some of you might be a father. Some of you might be a mother. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever ask yourself, when I human... When am I going to human today? Huh? When do I do human? Or, or, or when do I do father? Or when do I do mother today? We don't ask ourselves those questions because it's what we are. And not only is it what we are, every time we do that, we try to do our very best. Trying to be a good human being, right? Best we can be. Try to be a good father. Try to be a good mother. And those are just a couple of examples. But I don't think anybody thinks, you know, some point in their life and in their day, you know what, for the next two hours, I'm going to try to be a good father, you know. I don't know what's going to happen in hour three, but for the next two, I'm going to try to be a good father. Or for the next couple of hours, or for the next, uh, you know, event, or the next moment, I'm going to try to be the church. You are the church. 
And just like everything else in life that you are, you ought to be the best of that that you can. Honor Christ with your life. What you do, what you say, what you think, how you act, conversations you have. If you do that really well or you do that poorly, is that going to save you or condemn you? No, you've given your life to Jesus. It's not going to make you a father or not. It's not going to make you this or that, but it's going to make you either a bad one or a good one, an effective one or an ineffective one. You are the church. There's no such thing as doing church. This is, this is on Sunday morning, this is a time that the church comes together to meet and to learn and to just share life together, to fellowship with one another. But this isn't when you do church. You do church on Monday morning and Tuesday morning and so on and so forth all the time. In fact, if you're going to pick one moment to not do church, now's the time, really. You're surrounded by a bunch of other Christians. You're surrounded by people who know you and just get you, all right? But you do church all the time. Just You need to do it all the time. Don't church it up for Sunday morning. I mean, really, that's just hypocrisy, right? Isn't it? Isn't it? And that's the, that's the, the one thing in Scripture that Jesus comes down on harder than anything else is hypocrisy. You are the church. Be the church. When you leave this place, are you going to do it perfect? No, I'm not either. It's just the way it goes. But we're going to try to do our best. And so you are the church. But when did the church actually begin? You've heard that church has existed for 2,000 years, and that's true. This part in Russia, this part of a much grander church, uh, has existed for quite a while as well. In fact, people started coming together and saying, hey, look, we want a group of Christians around here back in 1840. 181 years, that's a long time. Long time. You know, we started meeting at this particular location in 2002. 2002? I think it was 2002. Uh, before that, we met down here, downtown here. <laughs> downtown. <laughs> Over there. And that building was built in 1907. Before that, there was a building across the driveway where Rick and Bonnie Kennedy live now, where Parsonage used to be, and that was, or what we used to call the Parsonage. And that was another building. Before that, it was on the south, south of town somewhere. Well, it was just out that way. And that, that building or those meeting places have been around for a long time. But we know that the building is not the church. Building's not the church. This building isn't the church. It's a wonderful thing, but it's not the church. The church is a people indwelt by the Holy Spirit after giving their lives to Christ. So, how old is your church? And if you think about it that way, it's a lot older than you think. When did the church actually begin, or the official start date? First of all, the church means, the, the word, the Greek word is ecclesia in Scripture. This is where you get the term ecclesiology, the study of the church. All right? That's different than Ecclesiastes. There's a book in Scripture called Ecclesiastes. All right? It's different. Ecclesiastes means preacher or teacher. Ecclesia is church. And Ecclesia is basically this, those who are called to assemble. Those who are called to assemble. So, the church or the Avengers, one way or the other. As such, churches have been around for thousands and thousands of years. In fact, we got a great example in the New Testament of Jesus talking about the church before He even established the church. He uses this word ecclesia, talking about uh, uh, discipline in the church and addressing sin in the church. In Matthew chapter 18, it says this, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Okay, And, and, and look, if they listen to you, good. You got it. You got to figure it out move on with life. Verse 16, but if they don't listen, 
Take some along with you so that every matter is going to be established in the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's Old Testament. Verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, what? Tell it to the church. Well, I mean, I thought the church didn't exist until later. I thought the church didn't exist until the resurrection of Christ. I thought the church didn't exist until at least the day of Pentecost. Jesus is talking about the church now. He's talking about this assembly that you worship with, this group you're a part of. The church is those who answer the call to be a people. But the Christian church, the Christian church are those who believe in Jesus and answer that call. So we're still left with the same question. Why did the Christian church come about? Or when did the church, Christian church come about? Look at Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It came in a mighty and miraculous way. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Well, a couple questions. First of all, what's the day of Pentecost and who were they? Uh, the day of Pentecost has, has really kind of changed, I think, definitions over the years. If you look up Pentecost or the day of Pentecost online, you'll probably see the day the church began. In fact, I actually read a lot of those definitions online, but that's not what the Pentecost means. It's not what the day of Pentecost was. The day of Pentecost was significant in the New Testament, but was also very significant in the Old Testament. Pentecost is actually the Greek name for a festival called the Feast of Weeks. Now listen to this. This is from the Old Testament, the Feast of Weeks. Deuteronomy 16. Count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. So count off seven weeks from the time you begin the harvest. Seven times seven is 49. You're looking at the day after that, 50 days total. Count off seven weeks from the time you begin the harvest. Then celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a free will offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. This is, Pentecost is, the Feast of Weeks. Penta 50 refers to the 50 days that elapsed. So it's been about 50 days since Jesus' resurrection. The Feast of Weeks now is celebrated at the end of the grain harvest. We too have a festival at the end of the harvest. We've got a holiday at the end of the harvest. What is it? Thanksgiving. You want to know when the church was established, when it was built? On Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. That's their Thanksgiving. That's what the day of Pentecost is. It's a beautiful remembrance. It's, it's a beautiful picture as we go into that season. Now, this Thanksgiving was set aside for a day specifically of prayer, but it was established in there or on their Thanksgiving. Those who were present were the disciples and their families. We infer this from Acts chapter 1. The, the women were there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, were there. His brothers were there, you find. It's an incredible picture of all these people who've given their lives to Jesus, just this small group in this room. And all of them on Thanksgiving were about to have a lot to be thankful for. So will you and I. Verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed like tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Well, of course that's the way it goes. I see that all the time when people give their lives to Christ. Don't you? I mean, doesn't that happen every time someone accepts Jesus? Doesn't that happen every time someone gets baptized? It happened here. This is what it looked like. This is what it was. The Holy Spirit means wind. It means breath. 
And right here, for the first time in history, you get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the church. The same Holy Spirit promised to you when you give your life to Jesus. Now, it happened a couple of times throughout history. Throughout Jesus' ministry, it happened a couple of times, but not in a permanent way. Jesus would bestow the Holy Spirit on His disciples to carry out certain tasks and to fulfill certain ministries. But this moment, this was permanent and this was forever. This was the beginning of the eternal church, the very same Holy Spirit that resides in every believer in Jesus Christ. He remembers being there that day when this happened. It enabled them to speak in different languages, minister in different ways, to fulfill Jesus' purpose for establishing the church. It was big, it was huge, it was miraculous, it was noticeable, it was audible, and it was visual. Why? We don't get that same experience today, do we? You ever wonder if we do it right? Has that ever flashed through your head? Because I got news, it's flashed through mine before. I wonder if we do it right. And you ever wonder if maybe it's broken or, or, or maybe this whole thing's just one big story and really all of this is nonsense. It doesn't really exist. Some of these things might flash through your mind. Look, church, this was done this way at this time for the reason you can probably imagine. You don't have to overthink it. This was day one of the church. The eternal church of Jesus Christ that exists even now here today, 2,000 years later. There were people there from all over the world in attendance in Jerusalem at this festival. Jesus was establishing something that had never been seen before, never been heard before, not this church. And it was going to last for eternity. This moment in history where Jesus was not going to come stumbling out of the gate This was a celebration, and it was not going to be celebrated quietly. Bottom line is this. At this moment, the lamb, the lamb part's done. All right? The lamb part's over. The lion's on his way. And this is the beginning of the return of the lion. See, this is the way people still see Jesus sometimes. Still see him as the lamb. He served that role. He died on the cross for your sins and my sins. I got news for you. When he comes back, he's not coming back as the lamb. He's he's done that already. He's coming back as the lion. He's coming back with fire. He's coming back with wind. He's coming back with a lot of other things. This is the beginning of the lion's arrival. This type of witness was needed to shake the world, you and me, everybody, out of our stupor and into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it was also a moment fulfilled in prophecy that the Jewish people had been looking forward to for years, generations and generations. Joel chapter 2, Peter quotes the same prophecy in this, in this uh, story, in this scene. And afterward, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I'm going to show wonders in heavens and on earth and blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will turn to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord had said, even among the survivors from whom the Lord calls. The kingdom of Christ has arrived. His people are now on the scene. That's you and me. His people are on the scene. Oh, there's more to come. There's more to come in the kingdom of Christ. There's more to see. There's more to know. There's more to experience and witness. But this is the beginning. It is the send-off 
of this incredible adventure of the church and your incredible adventure as well. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit still happens for everyone who gives their lives to Jesus. Peter's going to tell us that here in a second. But why doesn't it happen in the same way today? I got two answers for that. Number one is this. I don't know that it doesn't. I don't know that it doesn't. All I know is what I've seen and what I've heard. I don't know that it works that same way every time. I haven't been to every person that's converted. I haven't been to every person that's been baptized. I haven't been to every person that's accepted Jesus in different ways, in different places, different cultures around the world, throughout all of time. I don't know what I've seen and what I've heard. That's what I know. And so I don't know that it doesn't happen that same way or ways similar to it in amazing ways like that in different times for Jesus' purpose in that moment. Second thing is this, salvation is a gift of grace through faith. Faith itself being a gift. And it's not by having enough proof through our physical senses. Okay, I've told you this before and I hope you take this to heart. Don't ever get into an argument with anybody about the proof of God. You'll lose that argument. Okay, it's not there. It's not meant for that. The Bible's not meant for that. That is, that is so much nonsense. Okay, if there was proof, there would be no faith. All right? So don't even engage in those arguments. I, and I see it. I hear it. I read it. I hear stories about it. Stop. Just walk away. You will lose that argument, and you're supposed to lose that argument. All right? The Bible's not about this proof that we can lay out before those who would deny Christ, deny the movement of the Holy Spirit. It's about evidence. We believe on that evidence. Having more evidence is not, necess- not necessary for those who have faith. We have the Word and if we don't believe the word, even something Jesus says, even somebody like, come, like somebody coming back from the dead and talking to you, we're not going to believe. Much less wind and fire. Pentecost signals the beginning of the church age. All of this to bring the world into two questions. The same two questions you've asked yourself. The same two questions that the church wants people to ask throughout time. Look at verse 5. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, when they heard this sound, not the disciples, when they heard this sound, it was for them. Jesus was moving in this way for the crowd. A crowd came together in bewilderment because each one had heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't, these all, aren't all the guys here speaking? Aren't they all Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Look at all the different places and parts that people come from. Verse 9, the Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, Cyrene, people from Rome, the people from the island of Crete, Arabs. We all hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And here's the first question, amazed and perplexed in verse 12, what does this mean? That's what they asked. What does it mean? That's what it means to investigate the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of people that feel the movement, the tug, the something of the Holy Spirit in their mind and their heart, and they say, I don't care. Talking about your eternal life here. At the very least, investigate it. What does it mean? What does this Bible mean? What, What does this Jesus guy mean? What does this this feeling I have, this movement of the Holy Spirit in me? That's question number one. What does it mean? It's what the church wants people to ask to this day. What does it mean? It's what someone pursuing wisdom asks all the time with everything. What does it mean? 
Peter tells us, because that's what Peter does, right? Always the first one to speak, right? Peter. The same Peter who denied knowing Christ. That's the one who's about ready to tell us. The same Peter who was a hothead and lost his temper. The same Peter who always say, seemed to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. The same Peter who made mistake after mistake. Yes, that Peter is going to be the first person in history to address the eternal church. I don't know what your past is. I don't know everybody's past and all their history. But whatever your past and your mistakes are and your things like your bonehead moves, don't let that stop you from serving Christ. Please don't. By the way, don't let anybody else stop you. I don't care what they say. I don't care what they think. Don't let anybody else stop you from serving Christ. I mean, even here they begin. Look at this. Look at the next verse. Look at uh, 13. Some people, however, made fun of them and said, ah, they're drunk. They've had too much wine. Forget about it. There's always like one, at least one, in every crowd, right? I mean, not this crowd, but most crowds. One of the most amazing moments in all of human history Here they are witnessing it, and they miss it. They miss it. They cannot for a second take away the cynicism and pessimism of their life to see one of the greatest moments that Jesus has for humanity. That's a tragedy. It makes me angry, frankly. But really, more than that, it makes me sad that they would miss this. They cannot open themselves for a moment to see with the imagination and enthusiasm of a child, which Jesus tells us to do all the time instead of just making fun. So how does Peter explain this? Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. That's the evidence that we see throughout Scripture. That and a hundred other things, but this is just the part that Peter wants to talk about. That's the evidence we see throughout Scripture. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. How's that for an introduction, right? How's that for a get to know you? And by the way, isn't Peter talking to to these these Jewish uh, 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 sojourners coming in for Jerusalem? Isn't he talking to them that they come from all over the world? We've already said this, from every nation under under the sun. So how in the world can Peter look at them and say, you nailed him to the cross with the help of wicked men? Why did Jesus have to die to begin with? You want to know why? Because of you. Because of me. Let's cut away the nonsense and the prettiness of it. I've killed a man. Because I couldn't think the right things, say the right stuff. Because I was selfish, stupid. That's why he died. When Peter says, you killed this man, to the Jewish people, he's talking to the Jewish people, he's talking to us. Now, I know that you didn't drive the stakes and spikes into his wrist. I know that you didn't flog him. I know that you didn't put him on trial. But Peter covers that anyway. He says, with the help of wicked men. You want to talk about something that is just incredibly beautiful. That's the church. The very 
guy that we killed could invite you into his home around his table forever to live in his kingdom, to be sons and daughters of the king. That's what the church is. Right? We, we, don't, we don't say it this way. We know it, but we don't say it this way, do we? That if it was just you, Jesus still would have had to go to the cross. It would have been you and him standing there. You killed him. That's what Peter says to the Jewish people. That's what he's saying to us. That's why the church is unlike anything else that exists or ever existed. We kill the founder of it. And then he wants us to be a part of it. That's, that's a strange kind of love. That's an incredible kind of love. I love how when, when, when he was... This isn't a part of the message, but I, maybe I've shared this before. When Jesus was being crucified, he's being nailed to the cross. He says, Father, forgive them, for they, they know not what they do, right? But you ever notice what he doesn't? He doesn't say, Father, help me forgive them. He says, Father, you forgive them. Make it so that, make it so that in their life, in their mind, in their history, in their record, they never did this. That's how much I care about them. That's how much I love them. Father, you forgive them. I've already forgiven them, says Jesus. You forgive them. I mean, that's, that's love. Don't hold this against them. But God raised Jesus from the dead. God the Father raised God the Son, freeing Him from the agony of death because it's impossible for death to keep its hold on Him. Verse 32, God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, which is being poured out to you right now. This is what you see. This is what you hear. This was the promise, and here it is. That was the beginning of the church. Verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, the Savior of mankind and Lord, that is, the boss. Right? The king, the boss. Now we're starting to become the church. See, last week we talked about this, about knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. So here we have the facts are out there given by Peter. They are understood by the people. Now, is it going to be believed? Is wisdom going to take over now? Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit working in someone who hasn't even accepted Jesus yet. They were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the other apostles, this is the second question, brothers, what shall we do? What does it mean? And what do we do with it? That's what brings you to Christ. That's what brings you at least to this introduction of eternal life, to know who He is and what He is. That's what I started with when I was a little kid. What does this all mean? And what do I do? And it's this moment. When that question is asked, that the church begins. You know, in my imagination, you got to use your imagination when you read Scripture. It's the only way to read Scripture. In my imagination, Peter is just kind of staring at the ground, you know, when they ask that question. And he just, they can't see it, but just this kind of grin or smirk comes across his face when they ask that question, you know. Like, so it begins, you know. I wonder if he pictured that. When they asked that question, I wonder if he had any thought of 2,000 years from now, all these scenes flashing through his head. I don't know. 
But I'll bet, he, I'll bet in his mind he's thinking, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. 38 through 41, Peter replied, repent, that is change direction. The, way, the direction you're heading right now is towards death. You need to head towards life. Repent, 180 degrees, change direction, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look, I don't know if everybody in here has done that. I don't, I don't know if you've come to this conclusion yet that Jesus is real, He does love you, He did die for you, He lives now. But this is what we are called to do. And you need to know, let me look at your, these are not my words. This is the Word of God Himself. This is your next move. If you believe that Jesus is real, if you believe that this is true, this is your next move. I encourage you to do that today. You can do that today, here, right now. We'll baptize. We'll move the flowers. It's warm. It's still warm. I mean, I'm serious about that. You have the indwelling. You receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, that's for you and me as well. Look at verse 39. The promise is for you, your children, and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, He warned them. He pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And that is when your church began. Your church did not begin in 2002, or 1907, or 1840. All right? This is your family history. It is your heritage. It ought to be, it ought to be accepted as such and embraced as such. And let me tell you something, if you go through church history, it is a wonderful and scary and messy and beautiful history. Your family, your church, your body has seen the rise and fall of empires. And it's still here. It's still hanging around all over the world. It's seen the danger of both oppression and power. Your church has experienced incredible joy and suffered tragic loss. Your church was started by a group of Jewish believers in Jerusalem and has extended to Jew and Gentile alike all over the world. It has survived imprisonment, torture, disagreements, separations, schisms, and failures. Your church has shaped societies. It has shaped world history. It has saved countless lives and even given their own lives. Your family has survived pestilence, natural disasters, economic ruin, plagues, two world wars, terrorism, false gods, deliberate deception, and attempted extermination, and this morning. The world was not worthy of them. That's what Hebrews says. And it's still here. I got news for you. The church isn't going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. It's not going to leave. Are you? Look, I get it. It's not perfect, right? The church isn't perfect. Your family isn't perfect. But it will be. It will be. There will be a day, as we know, just as we are fully known, that we will be perfected totally. You know, as we grow, people will come, people will see. People will be added to what the church is around the world. 
even today, people are giving their lives to Jesus and becoming saved forever. I know it sounds dark sometimes or seems dark sometimes. And I know also that the church body that you're in, even the way you worship, might look a little different than it did when you were a child. But I promise you, people are still coming to the church. People are still becoming the church, saved forever. And they will continue to come. You see, the one constant really throughout all the years has been the church. America, even the world, has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But the church has marked the time. This word, this assembly, it's part of our past. It reminds us of all that was once good and could be and will be again. People will come. People will most definitely come. Let's pray.